Welcome to today's show and with me I've got a very special guest, Peter Hoyer. Peter is a, I don't want to call him retired, but he looks retired. Partly. <laughs> Partly retired. Peter started uh, working in the liquor industry when? Soon after you were born. Pretty much, I would say. <laughs> Pretty much, I would say. But uh, interesting for me is that Peter's dad was um, in, the, in the business as well. He, he started, for example, Argyle Liquors, which is now the famous Liberty Liquors in Durban. That's correct. And Montana Sellers at the time. Montana Sellers. Is, uh, yeah, I remember that on the invoice it always said Montana Sellers when we delivered there yes, in the old days. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, maybe start with your father. What, how did he end up in the business? Well, we can start with my father, but uh, of some point of interest, if we go back a, a bit earlier than that, my grandfather was um, part of the original Snell setup in, oh, in really? right back in the day. And I don't know much of that history, save to say that he at one point was a director of the original Snell. Okay. And uh, Was it before, before the Hoopers were involved? Yes, or have I, think they it was, I think it was before the Hoopers were involved. Uh, I never knew him because he sadly passed away when I was about three years old. So okay. I didn't know any of the history beyond that. But my father then, uh, as far as I remember, was always in the industry. Okay. Uh, through the days of the original E.K. Green, uh, Cellar Master, uh, found his way into Cellarbosch Farmers Wineries. Okay. And was quite instrumental in launching Mainstay in the, in the local market in, That's interesting. in Durban. Okay. Uh, and uh, I still remember some of the stories he used to tell us about how how they used to uh, get the brand into the market. Yeah. But specifically, they were targeting the the Indian market that, at that stage. So they would go into the hotels uh, down. If you what? remember the old Butterworth Hotel and those kind of places in Durban, and they would uh, do their do their work there and and and. Uh, for the brand and just try and get it out there. At that stage, Kane wasn't a, wasn't really a recognised brand. I think in Mainstay they saw that they had a high-profile brand that they wanted to launch, and of course we all know how successful that was. Yeah. So, but it wasn't an easy it wasn't an easy road, as far as I understand. Was uh, was um, was there any other cane on the market at the t at the time, or branded, or how did it work? Not that I recall. I think Smirnoff was just making its way there yeah. at, that, at that time, and um, there might have been some other cheaper brands that were available. Yeah. Probably no name brands, if if you if you want to call it that. Uh, but I think in Wednesday they specifically were targeting. Certain a certain market and a certain price point and a, yeah. and a certain image of the brand. Okay. And, and so he spent a lot of time on that project. Um, once he left Cellarbosch Farmers Wineries, he bought the Montana Cellars store on Argyle Road from the Koenigs, Gerard Koenig and his father, who owned it at the time. Okay. And Gerard continued to work for them. Did he not end up earning a spot on? Gerard did. Yeah. Yes, he okay. eventually went to have a spot on and yeah. had a couple of them, in fact. Okay. And as I understand today, still still selling wine around the town. Yeah, he's got a wine club, and isn't he? And enjoying himself very much, I believe. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, so you, okay, your dad bought it from them? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I came into the business um, sometime after that, about uh, after I'd finished my national service. I was messing around doing a couple of other things, and I eventually came into the business at about 80, 1980, I think it was. Oh, that's long ago. 1979, It really perhaps. dates you. It does date me. <laughs> it does date me. At that time, they had an extension to the retail liquor division called Liquor Master, and they were producing a cane spirit, a brandy, a gin, and uh, importing a, a, a Scotch whiskey in barrel, which was then broken down to the correct strength and put in bottle here. Mm, wow. They, that was my first job, technically. I used to mix the cane. <laughs> <laughs> the cane mixer. That was the cane mixer. The cane mixer at Liquor Master. So I broke my teeth in the in the bottling department. I want to see that on your LinkedIn profile. It's, uh, it's not there, <laughs> but perhaps I should put it. <laughs> yeah, there, there must be a fancy name for that blender or something. Well, these days I think they have very fancy names for whatever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, technically that's, that was what I did. So I learned how to how to how to get it from let's say tank to bottle yeah. and the processes that were involved. Uh, I spent some time doing that and then I, I went into the distribution side of the business just to understand that for another year or two. Yeah, at, at, at that old Montana store, was there, there was like a, in the old days there was a, something in the, wasn't there like a belt or something that you shook the stuff downstairs or, yes, or was it was. somewhere else? No, there was a belt. Um, it was quite common. Where else did I the, see that? The, um, the spirit division and the bottling part department and the distribution, etc., for for um, other deliveries was behind the original Montana sellers. Okay. What's now Mr. Price, I believe. Okay. And, um, yeah, so I spent some time there, then... Went across to the distribution side. I learned about the distribution. Did that, was it off on a different side? It was next door. Uh, okay, at, yeah. at Mr. Price. part yeah. of the same, yeah. same business. Okay. So kind of cut my teeth on, on those sort of things. Um, and then uh, my next boss was a, was a guy called Phil Ferreira. Who, but your dad owned the business? He, he owned the business, okay. but Phil Ferreira ran the uh, wholesale division from a sales perspective. And we had a product called Skipper Cane. I don't know if you recall that. Uh, it was quite successful at its time because it was priced strategically lower than the, the opposition. And they had quite a, quite a clever slogan which said, switch to Skipper and put the change in your pocket. <laughs> Obviously, clearly a dig at Mainstay at the yeah. time. So there... Yeah, it was a volume thing, obviously, yeah. you know, and it was had some some success. And yeah, I think that I think they had a lot of fun with it at the time. Okay. Do you think there was? I mean, was there in those days? I know there there was a lot of shenanigans happening with excise duty and and stuff like that. Um, do you think that sort of stuff happened in those days already? As far as I I, I recall, I, I I didn't wasn't aware of it, but okay. I was. I was fairly sure that there was something going on. Uh, who were the ringleaders or who were most involved at the time, I'm not really sure. Yeah. But 
there clearly were times when advertised prices were were somewhat lower than <laughs> practically possible. Yeah. Put it that way. Yeah. So how that all transpired in the wash, I don't really know. Yeah. But it's always been a problem. It's safe to yeah. say it's always been a problem, yeah. I think, one way or another. Yeah, and I, mean, I don't just, know to what extent it is now, probably not, yeah. not as well, not the same. I think a bottle of, uh, any bottle of spirits excise is about 60 rand, and then you've still got to add the, the value of the product and, and the bottling process and, the, and obviously the packaging. Exactly. And, I mean, and I often see That's product at, uh, at 70 rand, and, and there's no ways. <laughs> that yeah. that is a, a true reflection of what it what it should cost. I don't think so. It can't be. And uh, when I started my own distribution business, and I went to see some uh, guys in Joburg, and uh, he said, "Don't ever get into the vodka business or the cane business because you can only run a vodka business if you're cheating, the, the tax man." And uh, yeah. I also Still seems that. to be the case today. <laughs> yeah. So they did that. Um, and, I mean, we chatted about the cane. Cane, as I said to you earlier, I met somebody at uh, the Vans Hotel in Camperdown once, I think, Caterridge, Umlaus Road. And he mentioned that they used to get a gallon of cane and then they had to water it down. I don't know if he was a worker at a distillery or a, at a cane farm. I don't know what the... I can't remember... But you said something similar. So you, you As far as I'm aware, in the early days, that's how it was delivered. It mm. was delivered in, in gallon containers or configuration of gallon containers and then watered down on site. Was yeah. it from NCP or were there other, other suppliers? I think NCP was the main supplier yeah. in those days. Yeah, probably still is, eh? Probably still is. So, yeah, obviously the regulations weren't quite as strong and it wasn't as well regulated. But I think that, um, yeah... I don't know. I, I don't really know how 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 well it was managed yeah. or, or monitored. But I do remember going to outlets outlets like Butterworth Hotel down near Central Durban. Uh, Tom and Nadu at the time owned that place, and I still remember those big glass containers that sat on the on the on the bar, and the cane would literally get tapped off <laughs> out of those containers really? into the like glasses. A, like a like a draft <laughs> almost like a draft beer well, today yeah. so what the measure was I'm not really sure yeah. but it seemed to work at the time and I think you probably find some of those glass containers are still knocking around in a, in a few places yeah. now. I'll keep my eyes open yeah. um, do you recall um, the guy that started One Up Liquors Frank Jason yes because we're sitting here at Glen Ore Centre and you know that the Jason family owns this centre. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Frank Jason. I met him on, the, on a plane once. He sat next to me and he said, who do you work for? I said, I work for One Up Distributors. And he said, you stole my name. I said, yes, I did. <laughs> 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 and he, had a, he, he told me an interesting story and I must, must actually find, I must find him. And because uh, you owned the Imperial Hotel, didn't you? That's right, yeah. yeah. And they had their own brand, as I remember, one up mm. as well. Cane and brandy and yeah. <laughs> gin and everything else. I think he was very successful at the time, certainly with the hotels. Yeah, yeah. And he had a plane and he flew around visiting all his franchises. Um, <laughs> 
and how long did did your your dad still under the Liberty or the Argyle? What was it, Montana Sailor Offshells? Montana Sellers. Sellers. Yeah, it was then bought by Bacardi Group. Ah, okay. And um, they were they were investing more into their retail division. Was that still who controlled that group then? Union One. Oh. It was part of Union One Group. Okay. They wanted to expand, as I, as I recall, their, their retail division, specifically in, in Natal, because they had almost almost none. Yeah. And that was obviously quite a good acquisition for them. Uh, then sometime later, it was bought by Liberty Liquors. And that was the Hooper's family? or Yeah. Ken Henniker was the... Oh, yes, I remember his the, name. ...was the go-to man there, and he, he did a lot of good things with that business. He really... Yeah. He really uh, took it to another level. As you know, Ken was a, a great servant of the industry and a wonderful gentleman. Yeah. And he really did a lot for that for I that business. I can't really remember him. So, and now it continues to thrive, obviously, still today. Yeah, and now it's part of the Robinson Ultra Group. Ultra Group. Um, and for me, interesting is that you guys were the first to import vintage beer into Natal. Well, after not the first. after we left the retail yeah. side, we my dad bought a, a wholesale license called Team Liquor World. Oh. And so he, he started that and then I joined him about a year later. We had a small but interesting range of local estate wines that we were selling okay. and soon after and that did you buy did you buy the whole portfolio or was it we just the license no we just bought the license okay and then we went looking for some agencies so mm -hmm. we started in the wine wine sector we went down to the cape and we met with a few friends and, and spoke to a few people who we knew were interested and we put together a small portfolio of, of wines and that's where we felt we wanted to concentrate Soon after that, we we met and uh, became or developed a, a, some form of a local distribution partnership with Washington Wines. That was just a, when they were starting to to become successful. And Fairgelegen um, was an ex, was a natural extension of that business for them. So we had a little bit of help, you know, from from the big guy. To, to get us going a bit. And we we did that business, got that business going for, for a while. Five or six... Five or six years of good uh, good wine distribution. Mm. So we had a bit of a, a platform, albeit a small one, mm. in, the, in, in the retail side in terms of our distribution. Then, almost by chance, we met um, a character by the name of Gaspard Bossett, from Namibia Breweries. And after a couple of meetings, we we chatted about the possibility of us distributing some mm. beer for them. They they re really weren't represented in, in Natal. They had a footprint in, in the Cape and they had one in the, in the Transvaal. And that was, uh, was it with Manfred and... Yeah. Manfred Huff. Yeah. And in the, in the Cape, I think they had a... I think it was Greg Holtman who was, who was already in situ in terms of doing some distribution for them. Okay, but was he, wasn't he working for them? 
He was working for them at the time, yeah. yeah. They wanted to expand their business in, in the country and move from a, a just being sort of available through a local distributor into having a, a full platform so that they could launch their brand properly yeah. in the South African market. They sure. saw the opportunity yeah. and uh, it was yeah. obviously a good opportunity because their brands represented something slightly mm. different to, to what was on offer. Yeah, so, so they, they owned their own distribution in Joburg and Cape Town but left you to do KZN. Yes, yeah. yes. In time, Cape Town uh, was also given to Greg Holtman and he took ownership of the distribution there, yeah. as we did here. Okay. Uh, Joburg became a very big market quite mm. quickly, so they were a little bit more progressive there and they built their own, their own warehouse, they developed their own infrastructure yeah. within the brewery. It was massive in Joburg. It was massive, yeah. yeah. There was I mean, a guy the growth was, George. Was, you remember George? The growth was huge. No. I'm trying to think who the people were in Joburg. Well, they, had a, they eventually had a guy called Dimitri. Dimitri, not George. Dimitri the Greek. <laughs> yes, that's um, the one. Anybody who lives in Joburg will remember Dimitri. Yeah. And he, he was... He was quite special at the time because he was just the kind of guy they needed. I think he'd come out of the Gilby's stable and... He was well-connected. He was well-connected and well-liked and, mm. and, and they put together a really big, hard-working team who did well to get a footprint very quickly in that market. Durban, obviously, was a much smaller market mm. and strategically it wasn't as important for, for Namibia Brews at the time because they knew that... Once Cape Town and Johannesburg were really up to speed, then Durban would be a natural mm. extension. And as we know, sometimes Durban can be a little, a little lagging in terms yeah. of of, uh, of getting the traction going. So when did you start doing? So that was 1993. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't long before we started with Bavaria. No, it wasn't. It was okay. more or less the same time. I started in '94. And I think that's indicative of the of the, the market at the time. You know that, that there was scope for other brands. Mm. People were starting to look around. Uh, Namibia breweries had the slogan with the Vintuk beer that it was only made with natural products. And, yeah. You know, pure beer. We sold it on the basis that yeah. you weren't going to get a hangover. <laughs> And, and then the whole chemical thing started. Yeah, it just wasn't well, a nice thing to say, but yeah. I mean, you know, people used to talk about it. You know, yeah. oh, there's no chemicals in this beer. Yeah. Well, no, there wasn't, but you know, it's always what suits you and what yeah, you like to drink. Course. But I think we did we did play with that a bit, and we we used it to our advantage, and and Nothing. it developed very nicely. You know, yeah. it was it was really small in the beginning. It was the beer wasn't great, to be honest. It was quite heavy and dark and oh, really? high alcohol at the time. They were trying to promote, right in the beginning, a brand called Export. Yes. Wintook Export. Wasn't it in a blue can? It was in a blue can, yeah. yeah. But very heavy beer. Hard to drink, especially in the, in the, in the Durban humidity. But very soon after that, they switched back to the Wintook Lager. Yeah. Recognizing that that was the one that they wanted to, to do the work with. Okay. 
And Tafel never went, stopped, did anything? Tafel only later yeah. uh, was launched because they specifically wanted it to be Vintook and then Vintook Light because at that time, if you remember, it was when the whole drink and driving yes. thing became a problem and, and it was seen as a good alternative. Yeah. I'm certainly glad that I didn't know your background because you, it might have intimidated me. When we started Bavaria, we did. I thought uh, Peter and his, his crony Alan were, <laughs> were the opposition. If I'd known you got three generations of <laughs> legacy and stuff to stand on, the, yeah. well, we were still the small guys. I'll get the time. Eh? You were. Eh? <laughs> we were trying hard, but we were still the small guys. We still had to try and hide from well, the SAB reps because yeah. they still have a go at us whenever they could. But yeah, it was. It was interesting and uh, it was a great, it was great fun. Yeah. At the time, uh, we were young and we had a we had a young, exciting group of guys who yeah. were with us, enjoying the the success, and it was it was really good. Yeah. We we then you worked purchased out, a you, warehouse and yeah, and, you worked and, out of uh, and, and Tallgate area there. Tallgate initially, yeah, uh, which was. Not much more than a hole in the wall originally. Can you, can you like recall how many cases you would have moved in a month of beer? Yeah. Well, any numbers stuck in your memory? Well, our, our contract required us to buy to buy a truck on the first order, which was thirty-four pallets. Yeah. And by the second month, we still had half the stock, and oh. we weren't quite sure if we'd made a mistake. So we were we were getting orders for one or two or three or four, maybe five cases mm. at best. And then one day we got a breakthrough. We had a listing with Macro, and Macro Springfield bought half a pallet, and we thought, half well, a pallet. <laughs> that's wonderful. But to be honest, it, it moved quite quickly from there. Okay. Uh, I think we were getting support from the brewery, so they were helping with advertising spend, and you know the the bigger outlets like Macro, etc., were were supporting it. Yeah. And it started quite quickly. Um, we moved to a bigger premises in, in Pine Town with about two and a half thousand square meters, so we had enough capacity there. Is that the one where you ended up that you ended up buying? Yes. Okay. In Pine Town. Yeah. Off and Richmond Road. That's right. Mm. Yeah. And that was that was great because suddenly we had a home, mm. we had space, and we had a we had a presence, not just in the market, but you know, for people to see, people yeah. would come and see I was that, very that things were going on there, you know, things were happening. <laughs> Look, we were very aware of Bavaria, and we, you know, it was there, but we never saw Bavaria as our, yeah, as our main opposition. We, yeah. It was, you know, in, in essence, almost an ally because yeah. it was, it was what we were trying to do to, to extend the, the option available to the public. And let's be honest, it was South African breweries that we were, mm. we were trying to, all trying to get market yeah. share from. But I remember those days with Bavaria, <laughs> fondly. I think I made a few visits to your premises and had a look, see what was going on. Yeah, it's a pity that one that we one couldn't team up. I mean, obviously in hindsight, but it would have been a, a nice uh, force if we if we could have teamed up. I think uh, I think that the movie breweries, you know, with their with their objective, they they wouldn't have wanted to do that. No, of course they not. wanted to be specific. And look, it worked. I think you know they they did well. The brand continued to grow, and it's still a good brand today. It is. A, I mean, it, you asked about Tafel. Tafel wasn't really in the mix in those days, no. and it was only after a year or two 
once we'd made a couple of visits up to to the brewery that we you know could see a little bit more about what was happening there but we realized all the namibians were drinking tafel mm. and we kept saying to them well let's get tafel down in south africa it tasted really yeah. really good and as I recall, the tafel was originally made in the small brewery at Swakopmund. Yeah. Which they had acquired. Which they had acquired, mm. I think, from the Hansa, Hansa days. Yeah, so I think... And they had a really good uh, brewmaster there, Christian, somebody his name was, I don't remember his surname now. And he was really good. And they were producing brilliant brews out of that little brewery. Yeah. And I think they made all the draft beer was made from that brewery as well. And Urbok. And Urbok. Yeah. And uh, the son of the owner of the Soccer Brewery lives in Hillcrest. Does he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's introduced himself to me once or twice. Um, I see him around Hillcrest Tops. I can't remember okay. his name. Yeah. He lives around, he, yeah, he does some work at Hillcrest Tops. I don't know what. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would like to meet him. Chat about some of those days. Yeah. <laughs> so I've tried to get uh, to ask Manfred Huff, but I mean he obviously mentioned some names, but I can't I can't recall. Um, and when when did the then you also did Becks, eh? Or was it much later? It was a bit later. We we started. I think next came Holston. Okay. Holston was a was a really really nice brand, you know, out of Germany from Bremen. Yeah, with uh, Klaus von Müller. With Klaus von Müller. <laughs> well, wonderful man, that is. Yeah. And he was worked very hard in the serving market. They started brewing Holston in, in Namibia under license, and it was a good brew. And it, uh, yeah, I think it had a lot of success in, in Kauteng and mm. probably the Cape. Especially Not so Cap. much here, I think, because of the, the taste profile. Mm. It was quite a bitter beer. And uh, to our mind, not quite as suitable for the for the humid Durban market, but it, nevertheless, was a super brand. Mm. Then later came Bex as well. Yeah, and then you then Holsten moved over to Bavaria, I think. That's, That's right. That's where I met Holst, uh, Klaus von Miller. That's right. Yeah. 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 Okay, and Bex Bex was then still a family business, or Bex was still a family business. I remember going to visit the brewery and uh, in Bremen in Bremen yeah it was um, Bex was an interesting exercise again similar to Holston it was quite a it had quite a high bitter content typical northern taste German taste profile was typical northern German person yeah. as you say and delicious drinking but not what we would call a sessional sessionable okay. beer here yeah so again with limited success certainly in this market yeah and uh, I was talking to somebody about Bex and he, and uh, oh, the prince, prince from, from, from Bavaria, he said yeah. Bex was always the international traveler, the German traveler, businessman, anywhere you went in the world, he demanded Bex. And uh, now it's nowhere to be found. I mean, we Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm not surprised. in the South African market. There's only the alcohol-free available. Um, and it's obviously owned by ABN Bev now. Yeah. Um, I, I worked in Bremen for, for about a year and so I'm, I'm, I've got fond memories of drinking Becks we even had it on tap an hour in, in the in your apartment in the, no, in the, in the <laughs> office in the bar yeah okay yeah nice nice brand Bex. and can you remember launching the 
the Hofbrau. What was that yes. saga all about? Yeah. Somebody. Uh, there were two different brands. There were two different launches. The one was a Hofbrau. And, and there was a Dust Pilsner. And there was a Dust Pilsner. I, I can't recall at this stage which came first, but I yeah. suspect it was Dust Pilsner yeah. that came first. And that was a Namibian fabrication, the brand. Yes, yeah. Okay. We, 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 we had asked the brewery to, to look at doing a, um, a lighter, sessionable, easy-drinking beer, about 4% alcohol, which I think it was, uh, in the more of the Pilsner style, because they didn't really have one in the Pilsner style. Mm. And that was the, the result. And instantly found quite a bit of success, but didn't last, okay. unfortunately. I, I quite liked the brand, and I had my fair share of it, but I, it, yeah. for whatever reason, it didn't last. And I don't think they were too concerned about it, because although they were looking for an extension to the existing range, they did want to make sure that Winter yeah. Lager was, was their first, first choice for the consumer. And were you still doing the other export and what other spit? Export was there as well. Nothing really came of that special. Mm -hmm. I think went back to Namibia as a Namibian brand mm -hmm. only. Okay. And Urbok was a seasonal. Was a seasonal winter or hunting beer, yeah. they used to call it. Um, also, a delicious beer, amazing beer. Yeah. But you can't drink too many of them. No. Not at the high alcohols. Oh, a half a bottle. Yeah, half a <laughs> bottle was good. Then, as you said, Hofbrau, they launched as well. I think the, the op option there was to try and have a brand that was cheaper than the, than the Vintook pricing point and perhaps get a little bit closer to the SAP pricing and try to swing people on price a bit more. It's quite a nice tasting beer. And the idea behind Hofbrau, I mean, for us, Hofbrau means the Hofbrau house in Munich, but it's got nothing to do with that. Hofbrau is just, anybody can use that name. I don't think these, these it's it's a trademarked word. Yeah, I don't I don't know what the marketing mm. specialists were thinking at the time, but I'm, I imagine that they were thinking Hofbrau is synonymous with mm. volume beer at, uh, at a good price. You yeah, know, and perhaps okay. that's what they were hoping <laughs> to achieve. Because SAB they also didn't launched, get much success with the brand. Not at all, okay. Because SAB also launched a Hofbrau at the same time. That's right, yeah. Um, which was, I mean, wasn't it about exactly the same time? I think it was the so same time. So there must have been some yeah. spying going on yeah, on absolutely. one of the sides. No doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Um, and, and then sometime the, the Amstel thing happened, hey? What was that again? Well, that was the, the whole amalgamation with Diageo and Heineken. Um, Wasn't it before that already? Were you talking about we, the, we, we, the Amstel? We, Heineken. Where Heineken decided not to renew the, the agreement with SAB or something. Oh, that's right. Yeah, sorry. Um, correct. They, they decided not to renew the agreement and they, they went to... To remove brews to see if they would brew for them, okay, or sell under license or whatever it was. Yeah, and Heineken wasn't really that big then. Eh? It wasn't big, and uh, I think the Namibians felt that it was counterproductive to their own brands in, yeah. in many ways, certainly from a sales perspective. And bear in mind that also had a go at Guinness too for a while. You know that that brewed Guinness under license in Namibia. Namibia. Okay. specifically on draft I think 
and also with limited success both here and even less success in Namibia. I can imagine. So yeah, from there Heineken, I guess, became part of the Diageo fold, as, you know, as it turns out. From thereafter, is that the way? It, no, is no. that the way you call it? It took a while, I think, until until the whole brand house joint venture happened. But I can't. But somehow you ended up doing um, Amstel. No, not Amstel. Didn't you do Amstel? No, not Amstel. Oh. Amstel was never part of, never for us. Oh, okay. Somehow thought there was talk about it happening. Oh, okay. But uh, obviously, Heineken must have been in some sort of discussion with Diageo at that point. And was, I guess it was all put on hold for a while. Okay, and then they did that joint venture to form Brandhaus. And, yeah. um, and that's kind of where you lost Wintook. Yeah, that's when uh, that's when our contracts were well, came to an end. Yeah. And um, we kind of went our own ways after okay, that. Okay, and you'd build a, quite a nice business up to then, and then you lose the big Wintook portfolio, and then you got to re... <laughs> regroup I guess well yeah that's how it goes eh? when you don't own the brand yeah. uh, you expect that those sort of things happen but to be fair in the movie breweries right to the last day as always were absolute general okay. and they went out of their way to to make it comfortable for us and okay. uh, they were very good about doing the right thing they should have just given you tafel and said run with that well, one wouldn't that have been nice <laughs> might still be doing that too. Yeah. So okay. yeah, they they all went their separate ways. And so did we. So uh, we diversified back into whatever we could pick up at the time. When I say we, because uh, at that stage Hilton had joined me and um, then took a took a share in the in the business with okay. me. My dad had since recently retired. Uh, this was early 2000s. Okay. So he, um, yeah, so he joined the business at, the, at that time. And we kind of went back to the drawing board and said, okay, well, we need to get this thing going again. So we started looking at more wine principles. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got distribution from other principals who were looking for, a, mostly smaller distributors who were looking for a footprint in, in KZN that we could provide. And um, we started talking to a couple of other principals and a few, few beer people. And then that led us into our next venture, which was NMK Schultz. Okay. And, yeah, that was quite a nice business. I mean, I had, uh, we, at one stage, we were doing a bit of distribution for NMK Schultz in Durban through the Bavaria Network. Um, and I must give Rod Simmons a lot of credit. He taught, uh, taught me a lot of things about, uh, I want to call them cult brands that NMK were doing. I mean, these magnificent European brands, Brilliant. liqueurs and, and beers. And beers Rod's too. passion was always, I mean, it was infectious. I mean, some, maybe sometimes too much energy and too much push, but I certainly learned a lot from him. Um, yeah, and the NMK business, I, I believe Mr. Schultz is still, he lives in Hart Bay, he's obviously also getting on, but uh, yeah, I think 
the story was that uh, his son passed away in a car accident. I heard and, something about and, that. And yeah. then I think he wanted to. He lost interest in the yeah. in the business and wanted to sell it. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you guys picked up the business. That's where we picked it up. Yeah, it was it was pretty much the four guys that were sort of thrown under the bus after the Namibia breweries in the final episode and uh, um, uh, with Greg Holtman from Cape Town and Andre Homan in Johannesburg and Rod Bender I don't remember uh, Rod um, Rob hey. Rob yeah he was a, he was a great financial guy uh, okay and Andre was from Coca-Cola or what originally Coca-Cola but I think he'd spent some time at SAB too and then he headed up the Namibia Breweries operation in, yeah, in South Africa. That, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the, and the NMK Schultz story didn't uh, didn't go that well, I think. Eh? <clears throat> Not in the final analysis. No, yeah. I think the, there were some there were some differences there, and there were some peculiarities in the business. When we first came to it, it was mostly wine spirits and a little bit of specialist beer. Yeah. It was a great beer, but not big volumes yeah. no, no no major brands that were going to sell any volumes and I think there was some differences of opinion the, the sales team were quite highly focused on the wine portfolio mm. certainly the sales managers and I think the idea was to try and turn it into a, a beer company in the long run so there was a little bit of conflict if you want to call it that internally and probably never really found its rhythm. Mm. We became quite uh, involved with the Stella brand at that point. Stella. Stella. Yeah. And then that's when the whole... And that, that was quite... Yeah, there was quite a lot of opportunity. We, we got a lot of support from the Stella brand and we, the objective was to try and make it into a much bigger brand in this country with a view to local brewing at some point. Because mm. we did some local brewing at uh, Bavaria Bra. We made draft, I think. Yeah. And uh, was that about the time when the whole NBF uh, consolidation in Europe happened or was Stella still a, a small business? I think I think it was soon after that yeah. that NBF became... Yeah, all the Newcastle Brown Ales and all that stuff All the mixing up of brands. Mm. And yeah. It was about 10 years ago, if I recall. <laughs> yeah. Not sure. Okay. So, yeah, we got uh, involved, rightly or wrongly, with KWB at the time, mm. and uh, that didn't work out in the wash. But, yeah, we, we moved on again, and we, we went back to what we, what we started with in the beginning, which was the Team Liquor brand, and it diversified into the business called Beverage Emporium. Mm. And we hooked up with uh, guys from Joburg and Cape Town that we knew and tried to get some brands that we could sell on a national footprint, but with independent ownership in each mm, of the region. different regions. Yeah. And I still think that there's a, there's a really good opportunity for those, yeah. those kind of operations. As I've watched it over the years, I've seen how the smaller guys are get swallowed up by the big bigger guys yeah. by virtue of the fact that they lose brands all the time yeah. and you talked about it earlier how you know there's there's scope for smaller more specific customer focused mm. businesses that will deliver your brand quickly to a customer's door 
and efficiently for bigger volumes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all, I, I mean, with the, something that I'm thinking of now, I mean, the, the, the whole birth of the redistributor, I mean, when did that start? The first one was, I think, uh, Marriott Gardens. Remember Could have been Marriott Gardens, yeah. Remember, they used to start, they started their business delivering to the King's Park boxes and tents afterwards, and, and they grew into a redistributor. And I think that, in my memory, was kind of one of the first redistribution businesses, and then came Siggy from Fast Track. And um, I mean, that, that, kind of business is massive now there's every yeah. every town has got a redistributor and uh, where you can do one-stop shopping and I mean that didn't exist uh, no it didn't uh, in, in the early days we were quite nervous of those guys yeah. because although they were buying product from us we saw them as a threat because yeah. essentially they were going to do what what we wanted to do yeah and we never really understood well certainly in the beginning we didn't quite understand how to how to tackle it yeah Understanding that the the big guys were supporting them heavily because it was an, another distribution alternative or option for them, yeah. and the whole rebate thing, I think, became quite a big deal. <laughs> and obviously, for us smaller guys, we couldn't afford to give those kind of rebates, so we were we were left out of it. And we had to try and try and work around it. So, as much as we could, we wanted them to help us because we knew that it was an alternative getting product to, yeah. the, to the customer but it was an expensive one for smaller, for smaller businesses like yeah. ours yeah. where you got fixed margins yeah now of course those redistributors are playing a large part in the market mm. all over the country massive and I think massive. I think it's all thanks to the brand house guys I think they birthed these monsters <laughs> yeah yeah Yeah, and, and uh, you finally sold uh, your shares to, to Hilton and his partners, and uh, now you, you're done with the business. Yeah, that was almost two years ago. Really? And, uh, at the time, I decided I was going to take a six-month break yeah. and uh, see what comes up in, in the meantime. And um, I'm now a little bit further into my sabbatical <laughs> in six months. months. But I have been doing uh, a little bit of work with a couple of mates of mine in the okay. industry. I chat to Hilton a lot and I'm up to date with, with mm. what he's doing and, and they've got a good recipe there which will, will be great for them in a long-term mm. perspective. And uh, a couple of my other mates I've been talking to about some projects that we're busy with, but at this stage, mm. nothing, nothing specific. Yeah. So I try to keep my ear close to the ground as much as I can <laughs> after... 35 years or whatever it is you know it's hard not to yeah not to be involved it's hard not to wander yeah. into a, your local retail store and look at prices and yeah. what the offering is <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah that's kind of where I am yeah good what about you do you find yourself going back into that sort of no no the distribution, distribution no, no 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 it's not my my core strength eh? Controlling is not what I do, and collecting money and controlling staff and stock. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough business now, and it yeah. certainly has changed a lot. Look, the business. Mm. I think the biggest change for, for what I've seen is social media. I mean, people can that I interview now start a business, 
and uh, they can launch a brand on social media and they've never been to Joburg but they get orders from Joburg. Um, one of the, the guys that I interviewed last week, Rob Haynes, who started a company called League of Peers, has just done a crowdfunding for a new gin. He raised over a million rand on, on, on crowdfund, for, you know, crowdfunding and uh, overnight. I mean, not overnight. He's obviously done a lot of work and, and stuff. But, yeah. I mean, those opportunities exist now. They didn't yeah. exist five years ago. So Social media is amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. It's incredible yeah. what 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 you can do with it. Yeah. And specifically with with those those kind of activities. Yeah. If I just think of what's happening now in the gin market. Yeah. And you're very close to that yourself. I know specifically around the around craft gin, etc. You see all all of it on social media. Yeah, it's amazing. The events, the brands, the profiles, the people is all on social media. Yeah. And uh, and I think the consumer is is so sensitive to or they can pick up if it's fake if it's a corporate behind it and I think yeah. it's a big threat for the for the big yeah. brands and the big corporates yeah. I mean if, if a, a big company buys a small craft brewery or distillery I think it, it can be you know it can be a nail in the coffin yeah sure <laughs> sure uh, yeah it's, it's brilliant and I love social media and it's amazing what it's doing the world over yeah yeah, and I think it's a massive opportunity for the small guys to to really make a difference, like we've done at Hillcrest Tops, for example, where we've just really created that whole destination on social media. Yeah. Um, and again, that wouldn't have been possible. Yeah, but of course, you also have to be committed to it. You yeah. Know, it takes a lot of investment and a lot of time and yeah. you know organisation to to bring those brands into an outlet mm. like that and, and have them yeah. available. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. It's, it was really, very good catching up with you, and I look forward to some some more stories. And maybe you can introduce me to a few of the old timers that uh, have got a, a story or two to tell. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great chatting, and yeah. for me to reminisce a bit because <laughs> goes back a while and yeah. uh, how the markets have changed and yeah. the, the business has changed and the brands have changed. It's it's been quite an evolution, really. Yeah. So it's been great chatting. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks. And wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you.